Well, good morning again. Good to be here with you once again. You all know that we live in a, in a country that's uh, terribly, terribly polarized. People disagree on almost everything, but there is one thing that I can think of that, to my knowledge, almost everyone in America agrees on. And that is that something's messed up. There's one thing that we all agree on. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Everyone agrees something's dead wrong in our country. And not just our country, the world. Something is wrong. Now, what's wrong? Oh, there's a lot of disagreement about that. But no one disagrees that something's messed up. So, if you're um, a, a Buddhist, and there are some, in some 500 million Buddhists in our world, they would say that what's messed up is that people crave things that are impermanent. And that's what's messed up. We have to stop craving. That's the answer. Now, social activists, and of course, we have many in our culture today, say the problem is systemic injustice. That's the problem. And we need to correct that. Now, communists would say our problem is that we have the private ownership of property. That's the problem. And of course, they have various solutions for that. Now, of course, Democrats say the problem is Republicans. And guess what Republicans say? The problem is Democrats, the exact opposite. Now, economists would say the problem is income inequity. The money is spread out very, very inequitably, and it's getting worse. And of course, if you're an educator, you say our problem is ignorance. That's what we have wrong. Now, if you're Sigmund Freud, he would say, our problem is our parents. Our parents screwed us up. That's why we have problems. Now, if you're a globalist, you say the problem is nationalism. And if you're a nationalist, you say the problem is globalism. That's the problem. Now, if you're a Hindu, you say the problem is bad karma. You've done things bad in this life, and you're passing them on in the next life. It's bad karma. And if you're a humanist, you'd say, well, the problem is the evils that are in the social and, and physical environment, including the family. That's where, that's what got everything messed up. And if you're a Muslim, you say, the problem is that people don't submit to God because Islam means submission. That's what the word means. So what is it? We all agree that something is seriously messed up. Problem is, we, couldn't, we don't even agree at all as to what's wrong. Now, I'm sure every single person in this room here, everyone, and everyone who's watching online, every one of you would agree, something's messed up. What is it? Um, what would you say if I asked you, what's wrong with the world? And interestingly, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most important facets of a person's worldview, how we view life is what's wrong and how do we fix what's wrong? That's one of our, the big issues. Now, our question we're going to deal with today is we're going to let the book of Romans, chapter 1, answer the question for us, what's 
wrong with the world? It's going to answer it. It doesn't give us a definitive answer. That answer comes throughout the entire Bible. It began, of course, in Genesis chapter 3 when things went really haywire. And we've been dealing with the effects of that ever since. But this Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, is going to be the definitive passage in the entire Bible, which is going to try to describe for us what's gone wrong with the world. It's going to do so in, in a following way. It's going to, you're going to see three times, it's going to say, it's going to use the word exchange. The major problem the Bible is going to say with our worldview as Christians, what's gone wrong is we as human beings have exchanged something for something else. In the case of what the Bible says, we're going to exchange something that's better for something that's worse. And then three times it's going to say, and God gave them over. Now, the passage is going to begin by the fact that it's going to say that God is really ticked. Or you could say angry or wrathful. Now, when you see the word wrath from the, in the Bible, if you interpret that through your worldview, through your lens, you have completely destroyed the Bible. God's anger is never like our anger, ever. Our anger is emotional, and it's out of control. And it's usually not based on anything just. God's, when the God, Bible says God is, has wrath, his wrath is, as part of his character, he must be opposed to that which is evil. He has to be. It's, for example, if you have some connection with watching a movie about the Holocaust, and that doesn't bother you, you have a problem. You are a very bad person. If you can watch the senseless, horrible killing of people and it doesn't bother you, you are a bad person because you don't have a sense of justice. God cannot be like that. He has to, by his very nature, he has to oppose that which is wrong. Otherwise, he's not God. But now the question is, what does God do when he sees things that are wrong? You think, and most people think that God has a baseball bat. And when you do something wrong, he's going to try to hit you. We call that judge us. No, he doesn't. You don't find that in the scripture. Very, very seldom does God judge immediately. What we're going to see three times in this passage is it says God gives them, gives them over. As you know, any parent, not always, but many times, the most effective way that you can discipline your children is to give them what they want. And then they have to face the natural consequences of their choices. You give them over. Because sometimes as parents, we try to teach our children something and they just don't get it. They, and we, we try all kinds of different means of discipline and they don't work. Sometimes the wisest way to discipline is say, you don't believe that what I say is in your best interest? Have it your way and let's see what happens. That's what God does. We're going to see three times in this passage, God gave them over. God says, you don't want me? I'm a gentleman. I will let you. 
have what you want. But let me tell you up front, it's going to hurt. And you're going to hurt other people. It's not in your best interest. So now we're going to see a passage of scripture, which I titled Human Devolution, as Alan told us. You see, when we reject God, we start a process not of evolution, but of devolution. We start to go down in ways that are very hurtful, not the way God intended. And so this passage is one in which God is going to describe what's wrong with our world. And we're going to see that there are six exchanges that we make as human beings. We're going to exchange something for something else. And then we're going to do it again and again and again and again until we get to the sixth exchange. And it's really, really bad. Here's how it starts. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the first exchange is as human beings, and this includes all of us, rather than submitting to God, we choose not to submit to God. In fact, we choose to do what we want to do. And then when you choose to do what you want to do, you know it's wrong. So either you can come clean or you can, here's the exchange, you can suppress the truth. That's the first exchange. You can exchange submission to God for the suppression of truth about God. Many, many times as a pastor, I have dealt with um, uh, college students. This has happened to me many times. People in our church who grew up in our church and they were good people and we, I think they had a good biblical foundation and they went off to college and then they would come home and they would have many doubts, serious doubts about the scriptures and about Christianity. And I remember um, dealing with them many times saying, okay, let's talk about what are some of your doubts? Where are your problems? And after a while, I realized that, they, that something else was going on. And I stopped asking, what are your doubts? Though that came up later, but I changed my question from what are your doubts to what are you doing? You see, the truth, did you see in this text of scripture, we suppress the truth because of our behavior. You see, when you start to do things, as we often do in college, you know that we've been there. When you start to do things in college that you know are not right, you're faced with a, with a, with a problem. Your problem is either you can stop doing what you're doing and say to God, oh, I messed up and I'm sorry, help me. Or 
you can manufacture some doubts. See, you behave into your belief system. That's what we do. That's how we work as human beings. Remember way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned against God, and the first thing they did, and it's, it's characteristic for us as human beings, the first thing they did is they covered up. None of us expose our sin to other people. We always try to cover it up. And then when God confronted them, they hid from God. And then God said, what have you done? Remember what they said? Remember what Eve said or what Adam said? Anyone know? What did he say? When God says, Adam, what have you done? He said, what? <laughs> what, did you, what did you say, Charles? But almost. He didn't say the woman made me do it. He said, who? come on, who knows the Bible? The woman that you gave me. Who is he blaming? God. He said, hey, God, it's your problem. You gave me that woman. That's why I did this. I mean, that is bizarre nonsense. But we've been doing it ever since. You see, we hear they sinned, and who gets blamed? God. Blame shifting, we've never stopped. We just have become more sophisticated. And that's what they do. That's the, that, that's the nature of what sin does. The first step down is when, when God says, the Bible says God has put his truth, even apart from the scriptures, in creation and in conscience. We all have that. We have an internal sense of right and wrong. And when we look at the creation, we have to say, boy, there's something big out there, something intelligent out there, something beautiful out there. Somebody did this. It didn't just happen. Things don't just happen out of nothing. Even if you go for a big bang, big bangs don't just happen from nothing. Something starts a big bang. So what is it that's around us and inside of us? But we can suppress that truth. And it says we choose to put ourselves at the center. And then the result, the first exchange we make is we, we choose to turn from God, no longer submit to him. And then we start to suppress the truth. That's the first exchange. Well, what happens next? This is verses 21 through 23. It says, for although they knew God, remember, they know God from creation and from conscience. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So the second exchange is we exchange the worship of God for idolatry, which is basically the worship of non-God. Now, where does that come from? Well, the first step here in the, in the first exchange, remember the, the, the key piece was wickedness. We choose to sin. We choose to do things that are contrary to God's will. But here now, the major issue is ingratitude. 
Um, when something with insurance companies, when a natural catastrophe happens and the insurance companies do not want to cover it, they call it an act of God. Oh, you all knew that. When each day we come out and the sun shines and the rain comes down and our grass is green and our plants are flourishing and we eat all this food all the time, how often do we say, an act of God? Not once. You see, we blame him for things that go wrong. We call them acts of God. But the 99% of the time when life is good, we never say, well, this is an act of God. What do you call that? Ingratitude. You see, if we were honest people, every breath we breathe is a gift from God. We should be people who constantly say, oh, God, I've got a good life in this land. I got a job. I got food. I eat every day. I've, I've got friends. I, I get to worship freely like this. All the time we should be people of gratitude, but we're not. And when we, we change the worship of God for the worship of God, Idols. Now, what's the first idol? Did you see what the first idol was? We worship. Did you see what it said? What's the first idol? Exchange the glory of God for images made to look like. So who's the first? What's the first idol? Me. I'm the first. We make our first idolatry is ourselves. We're the first idol. That's the first one on the list. So we exchange the glory of God, the worship of God. We should be people whose lives are filled with gratitude because of the goodness of God. And instead of doing that, we create the worship of non-God. Images and animals and primarily ourselves. That's pretty, pretty sad. Now, this happened throughout the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, remember the idols that they made all the time were idols of Baal. What's interesting about the god Baal, that's a Canaanite god, is that it was a god of two things. It was a god of fertility, that is sex, and it was a god of money. And interestingly, if you ask, what are the two idols we worship in America today? I would say the two idols are sex and money. Nothing's really changed too much. And to show you the extent to which ingratitude is part of the human nature today, remember what Jesus said? Jesus, when he was here on this earth and he walked around, there were 10 people who had leprosy and leprosy was the greatest curse. It was like the Ebola of that day. They had to be quarantined. And there were 10 people, and they cried out to Jesus, Jesus, heal us, heal us. And Jesus healed all 10 of them. And then one came back and said, thank you. And that one was a Samaritan, wasn't even a Jew. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? Didn't I hear heal 10 of you? He says, I don't know what happened to them. You see, the truth about human nature is, we're not people of gratitude. We're people who take things for granted. And if we're that way, we make this exchange from the worship of God to the worship of non-God, we've taken another step down. And unfortunately, 
That's kind of what we have done as, as human beings. But now it's going to take another step down. You see, we began by refusing to acknowledge God and we suppressed truth. And then we stopped worshiping God and giving him thanks for good things in our lives. And of course, we started to drift into worshiping other things than God. But now, something else is going to happen. Larry Crabb, who is a Christian counselor, he wrote this. The first clear evidence that they were wrong is the, relate, is the breakdown of the relationship between the sexes. God's design for sexual relating becomes trivialized into mere erotic passion and corrupted into impurity and perversion. You see, the first thing we tend to idolize when we refuse to worship God, our greatest idol is sexual pleasure. Here's what the Bible says next. Therefore, God gave them over. Here it is. God says, you do not want to worship me? You want to worship yourself? Okay. Sorry to say it, but okay, do it. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, here's the exchange, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You see, God gave them over. Rather than sending fire from heaven, God simply said, if you don't want me, I will let you do what you want. And you see, the step from idolatry to immorality is a very small step. They began by deifying themselves, worshiping themselves, and then very soon, if you start to worship yourself and put God out of the picture, you, and you, and you worship yourself, you're going to worship sexual pleasure. As you know, that's a huge issue in our culture, and not just ours. Throughout the world, it's been a big issue. Now, sexuality, as you all know, is a gift from God. It's a very, very good thing. But in some ways, it's like fire. You see, fire is, is one of the great, great gifts of God to us as humanity. It, it warms us. It, we use it to cook our food. It, it's, it's so, so good in its proper context. But outside of its proper context, fire is an incredible danger. It, it burns our forests. It, it burns our bodies. It, it destroys and it kills and, and sex is like that. It's very much like it. And in fact, the words that it uses in the Bible to describe it are words about a flame. It, it's like a flame. You burn with this. And it's a part of our nature, a, a gift from God. But when we choose not to believe God, not to worship God, not to give God the gratitude he deserves, we then start to worship ourselves and the most easy thing to worship is sexuality because it is pleasurable. And that is the next stage of devolution. But as you know, sexuality in its rightful context is a natural thing. It's a gift from God. But when we choose to remove it from its proper context, 
it then becomes unnatural. So the next exchange is natural sex now devolves into unnatural sexuality. Here's how the Bible says it. This is verse 26. Because of this, because now we start to worship sexual pleasure instead of God, what does God do? You can do what you want. God lets us. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed. There's your flame word. They were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, we know a lot about this in our culture today, as you know. It's a passage of scripture I'd rather not have in there, but I didn't write this, by the way. God wrote it. My job as a pastor is, is simply to try to explain what God gave to us. But you see, when you choose, because of our behavior, not to submit to God, and rather than give him the worship he deserves and the gratitude that should be to dominate our lives, we then start to worship idols. The main idol that we worship is ourselves and the main facet of our lives that we idolize is sexual pleasure. And then we take that sexual pleasure, which God has designed for good and for pleasure, good pleasure. And we, took, we take it to extremes that are not what God designed. And there's all kinds of negative consequences to that. Then we take another step down. We take that which God has naturally designed for good and we turn it to unnatural things. Why? Well, for this easy reason that lust can never be satisfied. You always need more and you need different. All of us know that. It's never enough. So it goes from the natural to the unnatural. Did you see the words there? It says abandoned and inflamed. That's what lust does. Lust cannot be controlled. It's like these forest fires we so know so much about in this region of our country. They can't be contained. And they do great damage. damage. So God, God's sentence to us is he simply lets us have what we say we want. You sometimes look at our culture and you say, oh, God's got to judge us. And I want to say, yes, he is. He's not going to judge us necessarily with, with catastrophe or, or some, another depression. He may. But his judgment is simply, he will let us do what we want. Because oftentimes the best teacher, the best way for anyone to come to God is through pain. As we see the things that we, God allows us to do and we find out they're not working, they are not producing the happiness that we hoped they would, God often uses that pain to draw us to himself. And that's why we don't give up on anybody, no matter what anyone does. We love everybody. Don't condone everything. Because you abandon God, life doesn't work. Ultimately, and it's quite painful. And we do not want to see people in pain. We want to see them know Jesus. But we're not done yet. 
We've only had four exchanges. Now we hit the fifth one. And this one is terrible. Because it's going to say to us next that people are going to exchange the knowledge of God. We're going to eliminate the knowledge of God from our lives, from our culture. And when you do that, what results is all hell breaks loose. Here's what the Bible says. Furthermore, this is verse 28. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. He said, you don't want to know me? It's okay. Gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to do. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And as I say that list, you might say, I don't do that one, but what about gossip? And what about slander? And what about disobedience to parents? I mean, it's, it's full of things. We all are in this list. When we say that we do not want to know God and his standards, we then create our own. But when we do so, they don't work. You see, there, there's, what, when we don't take God's standards, what will happen is relational conflicts will proliferate. And we're in a society now where the, 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 the dissonance between people is going through the roof. We've got all these categories of angry people everywhere. And social order will break down. And the result will not be good. What has depravity done to our minds? We now call greed, we call that capitalism. And now we call murder, it's now called reproductive health. And deceit is called my truth. And gossip now is called office chatter. And God-hating is now called science. And immorality is called pride. And disobeying one's parents is called maturation. And on and on we could go. With everyone in this list, you can see how we rename them. And we justify them. And we practice them. But they don't work. They create incredible polarization and hatred and even greater ills, unfortunately. Ultimately, they bring about anarchy. It's not a good exchange to exchange the knowledge of God for whatever we have in our broken human hearts. We just follow our heart. We're in for deep trouble. We can see that now in our world. But we haven't hit the bottom yet. There's one last exchange, and this one is devastating. The last exchange that we make when we choose to abandon God, our last exchange is we now will reverse right and wrong. Here's what the Bible says. By the way, right and wrong will be reversed. Good will be punished or canceled and evil will be protected and applauded. Here's what God says. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree 
that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see that? Not only do we choose to reject God's ways, which is bad enough, but now we will take the opposite of God's ways and heartily approve what is the opposite of what God has intended. And probably what God has intended will be punished. We have, I've started, I do this oftentimes in my journal. I make lists of how we're reversing right and wrong. I have more than 50 on my list. But let me tell you a few of them. Following one's heart today, and the Bible says the heart is deceitful. All of our hearts are deceitful. When you say follow your heart, that means follow your emotions generally. That's called authentic. And following the word of God is, word of God is called old-fashioned. In our family, there used to be a time when the Bible said, children, obey your parents, but now parents obey their children. You ever look at the image of fathers in almost everything? Literature, Berenstein Bears, cartoons, television programs. It used to be fathers know best. Now we're a bunch of buffoons in almost everything. Part of the patriarchy, of course. You see, God's old order was marriage, sex, children. That was his order. And now our order is sex, maybe children, and perhaps marriage. Kind of shift that around. I don't know if you have followed in the news. There are places in our country now that are, have by law permitting polyamory. Remember the state of Utah right nearby here was not allowed into the union until the Mormon church would prohibit polygamy. Now polyamory, which means either one woman with multiple men or one man with multiple women, now is accepted by law in parts of the United States. And sometimes soon, it will become the law of our entire country. Rescuing animals, of course, is considered heroic, which it is. But seeking to rescue babies is considered illegal. That's kind of sad. Seeing personal sin in ourselves has become obsolete, while seeing social sin and systematic sin steals the headlines. Tolerance once meant that you, you can be respectful for people with whom you disagree. Today, if you don't agree with me, you're not tolerant. Absolute truth has now been replaced by my truth. And on and on we could go. We've devolved a little bit. You see, God's word is incredibly um, accurate. We've made exchanges when we choose to dismiss God or diss him. Instead of being submissive to God, we suppress truth about God. And then rather than worshiping God, 
we start to worship idols, including ourselves. And then that idolatry turns to the most obvious idol we worship as human beings, sexual pleasure. And then that sexual pleasure, which God has designed for good, we take outside of the boundaries and it becomes immorality. And then that immorality, which is natural in some ways, becomes unnatural. And then when we dismiss the knowledge of God, we turn to all kinds of ways of human wickedness until we get to the place where right and wrong are reversed. Stephen Hawking, known to be one of the most brilliant people who's ever lived, he said this, I think computer viruses should count as life. I think it says something about human nature that the only form of life we have created so far is purely destructive. We've created life in our own image. And as you know, Stephen Hawking is not a Christian. And this is Alan Greenspan, the former head of the Federal Reserve, and I don't know him to be a Christian either. He wrote this just after 2008, you know, the big great recession. He said this, unless somebody can find a way to change human nature, we will have more crises. We can't stop them. The only hope is to change human nature. I take you back over 100 years to England. The London Times, back in the year 1908, decided to ask well-known people in the society to answer the question, and here's the question, what's wrong with the world? The very question we began with this morning. And one of the people they asked to answer this question and write it into the paper, and then they would publish the results, was G.K. Chesterton, the well-known Christian, well-known writer. And he wrote back to the newspaper, and this is what he wrote. Dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Timothy Keller, perhaps you've heard his name. He's a well-known pastor in Manhattan. And he said in response to G.K. Chesterton's letter, that is the attitude of someone who has grasped the message of Jesus. We like to look for problems outside of ourselves. Everyone but me. G.K. Chesterton had it right. What's wrong with the world? It's me. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That is a Christian worldview. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Even when it hits hard and seems to be quite contrary to our culture, it's eternal, eternally true and really good. It's the root to joy, peace, purpose, and a life eternal. 
oh, may we as a, as a people be drawn to you. And in so doing, may we be people who love this world and we love people around us, flowing from our love from you and our love for you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Would you please stand with me? And I'd like to um, dismiss you this day with a, um, a benediction from the book of Jude. Jude, as you may know, is, was Jesus' half-brother. And uh, it's one of the most beautiful be- benedictions, and I'm going to say it in my own words. Jude ends his epistle by saying, Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to be able to present you before God's glorious presence, faultless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.